So welcome again to those on Zoom. Uh, we're glad that you're here, wherever you're uh, tuning in from. And uh, it's lovely to hear the, the chatter of people, the cheeriness of people. It's wonderful. But what I want you to do is go back in time in your head and uh, like use your imagination. Use your imagination this morning to imagine one of the most consequential, most like pivotal moments in human history. No small feat. Can everybody do that? We're going to go, well, sure. We're going to go back to ancient Rome. At one of like the, the, one of the most crucial moments in all of human civilization. Caesar, Julius Caesar has just been assassinated on the Senate floor. This is a huge historical moment. He had kind of claimed, Julius Caesar had kind of claimed kind of de facto authority and rule. And the senators of the republic, they're like, we don't, we don't think this is a good decision. We don't like it. We don't like where this is going. And so they assassinate Caesar on the Senate floor. And there's like 40 of them, I think. And as his, his blood is dripping on the Senate floor and his body lay dead, the whole world kind of hangs in the balance. Because Rome was the largest empire, the largest empire, the largest kingdom to date. Who's going to take that power? Who's going to consolidate this power? Where is this, who's going to lead us? And these factions started to grow. And they kind of sprung off into basically two, two camps, basically. Octavius and Mark Antony. And if you know Roman history, it's very complicated, very convoluted. But there's something really fascinating about this, is we can focus on the Roman history... And the ancient history and the implications of what, like the, the capital and all the implications of the empire. But what's super fascinating is this was a consequential thing for everybody in the empire. Every uh, province, every territory, every vassal state, every client, king, or queen who was under the Rome's rule was now wondering what is going to happen next. And Herod, way down in Judea, this little like backwater province. He'd been ruling over Judea for quite some time, but he was actually a, a friend of Mark Antony. Mark Antony was his patron, his kind of funnel, his kind of support. He, he was cozied up with Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Well, too bad for Herod, because as history kind of turns out, Octavius thumps Mark Antony. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra die. And Herod is without a friend. He has no ruling authority. He has no covering anymore. The person that gave him the kingship and the kind of the rulership of Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, all these places, is now gone. He's dead. He has no, he has no protection. Herod is a very smart king. They didn't call him Herod the Great for nothing. One of the, one of the commentaries I read uh, said it's like he, he proves early on why he is going to embody the word greatness. When he started as king, he did, wasn't called Herod the Great. He wouldn't walk in the room and say, well, that's Herod the Great. He had to earn that title. He was clever. He was smart. He was fastidious. And, and he could see the landscape. And so he did something incredibly risky. He went to meet with Octavius. Now, that, that name, is that name familiar to you, Octavius? Some of you. Put up your hand if that's familiar to you. Shake your head no if you don't know what I'm talking about. 
lots of hands and shakes. Octavius becomes Augustus. He becomes Caesar Augustus. He gets a rename change and whatever. So Augustus, basically. Augustus has become the first real imperial leader of Rome. He took the consolidated power from his uncle Julius Caesar, and he kind of grabbed it. And he became the first real, true emperor of Rome. Herod, way down in Judea, not yet Herod the Great, but will be Herod the Great, goes to meet with him. Now, everybody knows that Herod was actually a patron client of Augustus's enemy, Mark Antony. But Herod says, you know what? Here I am. I've been leading this kingdom. Here, you can do what you want with me. But it's this really great quote, and I'm not going to get it perfectly, but he basically says, there's no denying that I was friends with Mark Antony, but don't judge me by my friend. Judge me by my friendship to my friend. Don't judge me by how the person I was friends with. Judge me by how, friend, like how loyal and, and like good of a friend I was to that person. Augustus, Octavius Augustus, he's a smart, very smart ruler. He says, okay, that's fair. And he re-rewards the kingship of Judea back to Herod. But while this is all happening, people have kind of taken over Jerusalem. There's other rulers that Herod now has to come back and rally an army and fight his way back into Judea to reclaim the throne that Augustus has given him. This is interesting because while all this tumultuous stuff is happening in the capital, there are all kinds of these violent skirmishes happening all around the empire. Blood and sweat and fighting. It's awful. Everywhere you go, there's just constant violence. And Herod claws his way back in to Jerusalem and reasserts himself as king, a vassal king of Judea. And he's got a, he's got a lot of freedom because he's a client king. That's the way Caesar Augustus set this up. It's very smart. He's got a lot of freedom. But he has some ties back to the capital. He can't do whatever he wants. He can't seek his own political whatever outside of his rulership. He has to give armies and soldiers when asked. But other than that, he's got a lot of latitude and and leash to do what he wants. Now, Caesar Augustus is also incredibly smart, and he says, you know what, Herod? I'm actually going to re-reward you cities and territories that Cleopatra and Mark Antony took from you. And so, overnight, Herod now has an even larger kingdom to look over. And he's got new territories that he had lost, and new cities that he had given up. And one of those places was called Strato's Tower. It's a coastal village, a coastal town, kind of on the edge of the Mediterranean. And it's obviously beautiful. I've never been to the Mediterranean. Who's ever been to the Mediterranean before? Ah, lots of you, of course. I've never been anywhere. <laughs> Strato's Tower is not really much to write home about. But Herod is smart and clever, and he's going to earn his title great. And he rebuilds Strato's Tower, and he renames it Caesarea, 
after Augustus Caesar. Now, Herod, this is where, the, where archaeology and the Bible kind of converge. And oftentimes, these worlds don't connect. The world of archaeology doesn't connect to the, to the world of the Bible very often. Because there's people who study the scriptures. We read these words, but they don't know much about it. We kind of flip through it. We're not really looking for the archaeology. We're looking for like the move of God or, or some sort of idea or something to, to grab onto. So I was really struck when I came across this, this city, this coastal city, Caesarea, that Herod the Great rebuilt. And I was struck that he was a genius. Herod the Great rebuilt this coastal town. And one person said it like, the, actually the, Josephus, who's a Jewish scholar, or Jewish historian at the time, around this time, like after the death of Jesus, somewhere in this He's a very quoted person to kind of corroborate the biblical text. The, the description that Josephus gives, uh, modern archaeologists didn't believe. It was too grand. It was too incredible. It's like he's, he's, exa he's exaggerating. It's hyperbolic. It's not possible until they actually found what Josephus was talking about. And then they could imagine how actually grand this place was. Marble slabs and mosaics and pillars and, and an artificial port. And this is where I really was blown away. That Herod the Great, rebuilding the city, he actually like, was a marvel of Roman architecture. Because he basically used or invented or somehow hydraulic concrete to build the port in Caesarea. So this is concrete that hardens underwater. This is 2,000 years ago. It took my town of Chesley like a year and a half to rebuild the bridge <laughs> with a tiny river. But he went out, and there's no natural port there. There's no natural spot or bay or islands to kind of shield around. He built a port with hydraulic concrete, importing probably volcanic ash from Mount Vesuvius, stirred it all up, and in bad weather, built a port. This is incredible. It's remarkable. So Herod the Great was great, a genius. And he's got this beautiful city dotted on the coasts of the Mediterranean that's immaculate, it's glowing, it's white, it's rich. It's the tr one of the main trade ports for his kingdom. And this is where this guy lived, Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's a captain in the, in, in the Roman military. He's got about 100 men underneath of him in his care, in his stead. And centurions are the backbone of the Roman military machine. One, one scholar said it like this, centurions were not the ones to rush into battle. They were not the, like the, the brave, uh, reckless warriors to just like, start a fight when there isn't one. They also weren't ones to run away. Centurions were stoic, thoughtful, reflective, strong, even-tempered. They are what made the Roman machine, the Roman military machine, work. They had the trust of their men. They had the tactical fortitude and wherewithal to fight, but they also knew when not to. 
And so Cornelius is a well-respected, wealthy centurion. He's known around town. He's got his, his people. He's got a large family. He's probably a little bit older. He's not quite retirement age yet, but he's not a young whippersnapper. He probably has weathered eyes. He's seen a lot. He's lived through a lot. Now he's lived through a massive political shift. But he, he, he knows how to handle it. There's something really important about, about Cornelius. There's something different about him. Is he had a, like a longing in his eyes and in his soul. The Roman pantheon, all the gods and all the temples and all the worship to, to all these deities didn't satisfy him. He was a purebred Gentile. He was Roman. And his own kind of religious culture was just not enough for him. He craved more. He thought deeper. He desired for more. And so despite the Roman allotment for religious participation, which they did, Cornelius was like, that's not enough for me. I want more. I have deeper questions. And so in a very odd uh, behavior, we're not really sure how this happens, Cornelius becomes basically a Gentile Jew. And not a full Jew. He's not going to the temple and he's not making the sacrifices, but he's, he's worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, the, the invisible God, the God with no shrine, the God that doesn't have an Im, a graven image, the God that doesn't have a, a temple with occultic worship like the Roman pantheon does. He's worshiping the invisible God. And he, he also sees the poverty in his town. He sees the injustice. He's been around. He knows what this war machine and this Roman Empire is like. And it disturbs him. And so he, he's moved to act. He shares what he has. He gives alms to the needy. He reaches out to the poor. He's kind of an odd duck. But he's not alone. How many centurions do we find in the scriptures that are like, they see Jesus even before the disciples do? Which is interesting to take note of. And here Cornelius is, him and his family, they are Yahweh worshipers, God-fearing, God-following people. And one day at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, someone comes to his door and it's as like real as a, as a human being in front of him. And, it, and he's, he can't quite understand. He can't quite make sense of what he's looking at because it's not really a human, but it is a human. It's maybe emanating or glowing a little bit. We don't know. But it's clearly a messenger from somewhere else. And he greets the person and says, hello? Remember, he's seen a lot. He's been places. He, he's, he's been exposed to a lot of stuff. But he's taken aback. Hello, who, who are you? And, and the messenger comes and says, hey, Cornelius, God, you got, you got his attention. God sees you. Sorry, what? What are you talking about? God sees you, Cornelius. He sees what you've done. He sees your heart, how you've given to the poor and to the needy. How you have feared him and loved him. Okay. Cornelius, this is what you need to do. You need to go send for Simon, the one they call Peter. He's down at Simon, the tanner's house in Joppa. Go send him 
and bring him back to you. Okay. The messenger leaves. This is a weird experience for Cornelius. And so he obeys. He says, that's strange. Don't know who that was. But he immediately calls for two of his his guards, two of his soldiers, and one of his most trusted friends, one of his trusted soldiers. He says, you need to go down to Joppa, 30 miles away, about 60 kilometers. Go to this person, Simon the Tanner's house, and ask for Simon, the one they call Peter. And so they do. Flip side, some 60 kilometers away on the coast is a little hut made of stone. On the shores, you can, you can smell the salty air. You can feel the breeze coming off the Mediterranean. It's, it's a beautiful spot, but there's an odor in the air that's really not very palatable. And as you look around, you can see there are animal hides and animal carcasses kind of strewn about and racks with hides draped over them as they're bleaching in the sun. Simon is a tanner. It's not a very reputable job. Most people don't want to be tanners. They don't want, this, they don't want to be around the smell and the guts and the bones and the blood and the, whatever you do is you rake off all the fat to, to tan the hides. But leather's really important back then. It's a crucial trade for chariots and bags and everything else. And his job is very important, but he's kind of on the outside of the city of Joppa because nobody wants to be really near him. And here is Simon the Tanner with Simon Peter. Peter's there. Oddity number one, because a good Jew shouldn't be around unclean animals, dead animals. But here Peter is at Simon Tanner's house, who's clearly a follower of Jesus by this point. And it's about lunchtime. And so I can imagine kind of Peter's, I don't know, maybe I don't have a very good view of Peter in my mind. I can imagine Peter's kind of a a pushy guy. Like he's kind of like, like when he's hungry, he's hangry. And he's not very nice. That's just kind of how I imagine Peter. Maybe I'm wrong, and I'm sorry, St. Peter, if I am. But... I imagine it's about lunchtime and he's hungry and so he he's kind of climbs the top of the roof and he realizes he's hungry and he kind of barks down to Simon the Tanner, hey, I'm hungry, let's, like, let's eat, it's, it's noon. Simon the Tanner's like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that, Peter, it's got to wash the blood off my hands and then I'll prepare some lunch for us. Simon's like, fine. So Peter's on the roof and he's just sitting there and he's just taking in the, the sea air and he's above the smell, so it's kind of a nice place to rest. And then all of a sudden... He goes into a trance. Peter is locked eyes somewhere in the vicinity where the the water meets the beach. And he can see what looks like a sail or a blanket lowering down from the heavens attached to four ropes. And as he's looking at it, he can see that the underbelly of the blanket is moving. It looks like it's, it's made of water, and it's like circling and swirling, and there's activity on the blanket. And as it's lowering, he can see that it's, the blanket is actually filled with animals, all kinds of animals, every kind of animal Peter could probably think of. And the, and the blanket lowers and lowers and lowers and touches the ground. And by now, his belly is really rumbling and is churning up in his trance. And he hears an audible voice. 
Peter, it's okay. Go, kill, and eat. And Peter looks at the blanket, and he sees that there are all kinds of animals, pigs and rodents and animals that are, Peter would never think to eat. Half of them are probably too disgusting, but more, the law of Moses forbids the slaughtering and eating of unclean animals. And he says, and he says aloud, he says, no, I have not eaten those things and I never will. I haven't. And the voice says, Peter, if God says it's okay to slaughter and eat, it's okay to kill and eat. Three times Peter argues with the voice. Now this is not an accident. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did, G- did Peter fight with Jesus on the beach after his resurrection to say, you know, like, hey, what's up with John? What are you doing to do? Love, you love me like my sheep. How many times did he argue with Jesus on the beach? Three times. You'd think Peter would get it. But at first, he didn't get it. And then he realizes, as the, 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 the blanket, after the three times the blanket lifts above, he comes out of his trance. Simon the tanner walks up with a plate of food. And Peter is struck. What just happened? Now, like Cornelius, Peter has been around. He knows. He's seen a lot. But when you have a spiritual experience like that, a transcendent experience, it's, it's, it's moving. You can't ever be the same. And it just so happens that as the, the lunch is coming to him and Peter comes out of his trance, these three guys show up at Simon the Tanner's house. And Peter's not really so much paying attention at this point because he, he's kind of like perplexed. And the spirit whispers to him, he says, go down to these people. They're here for you. Peter. They've come to see you. So Peter walks down the ladder, turns around, and he comes up to these three guys and says, I think you're here to see me. I'm Peter. The men stand perplexed. Yes, actually, we're here to see you, Simon, the one they call Peter. Peter does something a little odd. He says, well, it's late. You've come a long way. Come in, for, come in to eat. Stay with me, with Simon the Tanner. And Jew invites Gentiles into his house to eat and stay and sleep. The next day they get up and they walk. And it's a long way. And by day four, Peter is now on the outskirts of Caesarea. This city that kind of encapsulates everything incredible and awful about empire. Peter's walking past the theater, the 4,500-person theater built. He can see the port. He can, the marble and the, the white and the glistening gold off this city. Everything that Rome stood for, this industrial machine that conquered the violence and the blood 
the mix of culture and religion colliding together. Peter is now walking into a Gentile-run city that his apparent king, his lineage that he's supposed to have fealty to, has kind of sold out to. And as he walks up the steps to Cornelius' villa, I, I'm so curious to know what, what Peter was thinking. And he knocks on the door, and it opens. And I imagine it, that Cornelius has been sitting, waiting, stewing, praying, anxious. These days have felt like years as he's waiting to, to find out why Simon Peter should come to his house on behest of this angelic messenger. And he darts up, he, he leaps from his chair, and he sees Peter. Oh, oh my goodness, it's Peter. And in a fit of fury and love and ex excitement, he falls at Peter's feet as if to worship him. And Peter looks down and he says, get up, man. What are you doing? I'm just a man just like you. And he picks him up. And then they share their stories. How Cornelius is out there and this messenger comes and sends down. And Peter's like, yeah, like I was prompted by the Spirit to come to you. And then something absolutely radical happens. Cornelius, Gentile centurion, says to Peter, come inside. Come eat with me and my family. Come stay under my roof. And Peter walks through Cornelius' threshold and he sits at the table with Cornelius. They break bread and they eat. The whole story of Acts is leading to this kind of moment. Because when you read the book of Acts, if you read from chapter 1, up to chapter 10. This is actually the longest narrative in Acts. Luke doesn't, uh, he doesn't care about space and time. I said last week that they care about every, every word. They don't, min they don't waste words. They don't time or space or energy to waste their words. Which is really important because Luke takes a lot of words to tell this story. All the stuff with the, the spirit and the pneuma and the early conversion and, and, and Peter's preach in Jerusalem, and the early converts, and the disruption in, in Jerusalem, and the capital, and the high priest, and, and Stephen's stoning, and the, the eldership with Philip, and the wizard, and the eunuch, and Saul, and his chase. It all pivots on this story. Because Peter is a Jew. He is not. Even, the, even the, the weakest Orthodox Jews would never sit in the house of a Gentile. They would never eat with a Gentile. They would never stay with a Gentile, with a non-Jewish person. Peter is born and bred Jew. 
orthodox, God-fearing. When he walks through the door of Cornelius' house and sits down at Cornelius' table and eats with Cornelius, a Gentile, history is never the same. The backdrop of this city, of the, the height, the good and the bad, of all that is wrong with empire, the violence, the greed, the corruption, the political maneuvering, God was doing something even more radical with the simplicity of a meal. That thousands of years of history, thousands of years of trajectory and belief and, and conviction wiped away with some bites of bread and sips of wine with people from different races. And Peter is, he, he, he's brilliant. He, he gives a really, really amazing sermon. He just, and I love how uh, the text says, is that Peter fairly exploded. Fairly, like he, he was right, rightfully exploded with excitement, with the good news. So if you can imagine, if Luke is saying that Peter rightly exploded. And Peter's already a loudmouth. He's already the, the bombastic extrovert. Imagine how much energy Peter's giving to this. Like, he is, he explodes with good news. You know, maybe even screaming, I don't know. In God's own truth, Peter says, nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference who you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is open. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put together again, well, he's doing it everywhere among everyone. This is a, an amazing Revelation for Peter. He's had days to think about this lowering blanket of animals, clean and unclean animals, and this kind of final transcendent picture that he has that, you know, you can, don't worry. Clean, unclean, Jew, Gentile, don't worry about that, Peter. Jesus has come to make everything right, everywhere, with everyone And this is, he, he takes it all the way back to Mark, ironically, because we started in Mark like a year and some ago. And he says, you know what happened in the story of Judea. It began in Galilee after John preached total life change. Then Jesus arrived from Nazareth, anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, ready for action. He went through the country, helping people and healing everyone who was beaten down by the devil. He's able to do this all because God was with him. And we saw it, saw it all. Everything he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And where they killed him, hung on a cross, but in three days God had him up, alive. And out where he could be seen. Not everyone saw him. He's put on public display. Or he wasn't put on public display. Witnesses had been carefully handpicked by God beforehand. Us. We were the ones. There to eat and drink with him after he came back from the dead. 
He commissioned us to announce this in public, to bear solemn witness that he's in fact the one whom God destined as judge of the living and dead. But we're not alone in this. Our witness that he is the means to forgiveness of sins is backed up by the witness of all the prophets. No sooner than the words out of Peter's mouth, the Holy Spirit came on the listeners. The believing Jews had come with Peter, couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on outsiders, non-Jews. But there it was. They heard them speaking in tongues, heard them praising God. And then Peter, as if he's echoing Philip, says, do I hear any objections to baptizing these friends with water? They received the Holy Spirit exactly as we did. Hearing no objections, he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked Peter to stay on for a few days. This is a remarkable story. A playful story, an imaginative story. One you could like barely make up if you sat down with a pen and pencil and tried to, try to do it. But Peter's summing up the shift, the new narrative that he was now a part of. That he was able to take a moment and look back and say, wait a second, all this stuff before, all the prophets before, the law, going all the way back to the beginning of time, this was the plan all along for Jesus to make everything right, for everybody everywhere. No wonder he exploded with excitement. So as we look as a church, and we look forward as a church, we intentionally came to the book of Acts to slow walk it, to see, to experience what was happening in that early movement, what was happening with these early followers of Jesus. And I want to tell you, a lot was happening. And mostly, for someone like myself, as I look at it, I say, mostly what I think is happening is this slow erosion of prejudice and bias and ideology and even theology that someone like myself would has held on to for a long time. That the things that give me identity, that make me feel infer inferior or, or superior, make me feel better than or separate from, those are the things that I see in Acts that, that the Spirit is like chipping away at. And I don't often feel like uh, kinship with Peter because I don't think Peter and I would get along very well because he's loud. But I see myself and Peter, that it took Peter a long time to slowly peel back his prejudice, his bias, his leanings, his history, his story, until finally he was able to say, wait a second. God is rewriting a new story, and that's the one I want to be a part of. And as a church in transition, looking to the future, where is God leading us as individuals? Where is God leading us as a congregation? What kind of things are we going to look for as we move forward? Because I dare say that the same metrics that we used 50 years ago, we're not going to look for the same things that we did 
even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, yesterday, God is writing a new story, a new narrative. And we have the, the, the joy of being a part of that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you, you came and you made all things new. And as Peter said, you, you came to correct and redeem and restore everything, everywhere, for everyone. Jesus, I confess my own prejudices, my own biases, my own leanings, my own um, insecurities with my identity and who I am and where I'm going and what, I, what I'm doing and what I'm about. Jesus, may I be more trusting of you. May I be able to, 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 to join you in your new story that you're, that you're telling. May I have the courage to do that. May, may I have the obedience to do that. Jesus, I thank you for uh, your story. I thank you that uh, it is, it's a story of, of all time. It's a story of love and it, of care and compassion and that, that you are still doing remarkably radical things if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. So Jesus, I pray for everyone here. I pray for this congregation. I ask that everyone here would, would feel compelled to see themselves as participants in your story and be courageous to walk with you in that. Thank you for these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.